there is no right or wrong way of getting married. That is my first philosophy and first and foremost understanding that I impart to the couples who come to me. They don't think that it has to be certain ways. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Dr. Ranjan Ravalia. Ranjan is a retired engineer that earned her PhD in chemistry in India in the 1980s. At 62, she decided to come out of retirement by visiting Haridwar in India and training to become a priestess. Today, at 67, she goes by the moniker, the New England Priest, as she officiates weddings. It was interesting hearing her philosophy on weddings and how it applies to the non-traditional ceremonies that she has to do in the US. How she conducts interfaith weddings, for example. Before that, we dip into Ranjan's life growing up. She shares the story of her father fleeing Tanzania during Idi Amin's reign. We talk about her decision to pursue higher education despite her father's wishes and how she convinced him to pay for it. Walls and education, two things you should never pay for yourself. She also told me how she earned the nickname Rapid Runjan while hiking Kilimanjaro, about the tattoo that she got at 56, and about her philosophy on parenting and grandparenting. Enjoy, enjoy, Ranjan Ravalia. Welcome to Brown People We Know. Brown People We Know supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 We Can Do This education campaign to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to healthcare, Many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. A lot of my listeners know this about me, but I rock climb and so I was very jealous when, when I heard that you've done Kilimanjaro. Ah, I, the moment you said rock climbing, I was about to say, oh, you are getting into Kilimanjaro right at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm starting there. So what was that like? But the thing was that I lived in Tanzania for a long time. My father was there for 20, 22 years. And we always, you look at the picture that describes Tanzania, Kilimanjaro is the picture people would see that represents Tanzania. So I, and I had known a few people who had climbed. So it was always something that I had at the back of my mind. And then we all, my sisters, we all started uh, talking about it in like 14, that maybe before we all, you know, get old and can't do anything, maybe we should all go together. And then uh, one of my sisters immediately caught on to it and uh, they made their own arrangements. I said, you can't do that on your own. You have to invite all these people. We, we want to do it together. So then we decided we'll all go together and uh, we had like two weeks of African experience, which included Kilimanjaro. But the actual climbing part, 
you cannot climb Kilimanjaro without a guide. So you have to make arrangements for people to care for you while you are up. And because the atmosphere is so thin, they need all sorts of medical history and all that. So finally, you know, we got all those things together and uh, just jumped right into it. And uh, the people there are so nice, so nice. You can't even imagine anyone doing things that they do for you. Because we were so many females, we had a party carried all the way up to Kilimanjaro, which is part of their routine if someone requests it. But because we were like out of 10, 12 people, you know, more than 50% of them were women. So they wanted privacy. So who would carry a party for you? You know, <laughs> that is what they, I mean, that is the extreme end of help that they give you, you know. So it was fun. What was the nickname that they gave you on that climb? They called me Rep Dranjan. <laughs> so the thing was that uh, I would always start off first because otherwise, you know, people are waiting for one another and they, it takes, it delays the start process. So I, I'd say, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to start. So the first guide who would lead the group would go with me, the first one, and then everybody slowly catch up. <laughs> and so then we'll, I'll be the first one to start. So that's why they called me Rapid Ranjan. That's hilarious. So something that you and I share in common is that my family happened to be in Saudi Arabia when I was born. I moved out when I was a baby. I don't remember it at all. There's really no impact on my life from that moment. But it's interesting because your parents had spent about 20 years in Tanzania before they left because of Idi Amin and the expulsion of Asians. But you've been back since then. So I'm kind of curious like, what the influence is of that expulsion on your family. I would say the most influence I would allude to is the fact that our financial situation deteriorated so quickly that it was very tough on my parents to support a family. We were separated for so many years. My father was in Africa and was petrified of leaving Africa because he thought that he would get caught and he would be, you know, taken up to some you know dark cell where they used to used to keep people so he was really scared of just leaving and then finally after a couple of years my father decided that this is not working he bought a brand new car so that they would not suspect that he was going anywhere and then he gave the business to his assistant just without even directly telling him he just left the business to his junior person and went to the airport, left the keys in the car and boarded a flight. And then he came to India and then he was so depressed for a long time because he left all his life's earning and then he started at the bottom in India. We were all kind of, you know, 15, 16 year old. So the demands on the family for financial resources is different than when you are a baby. And so that was more difficult on my parents than on us because we barely realized what the heck was going on. And so during that time, it sounds like you and your mom had already moved to India. Yes, because uh, we had gone to India for uh, my college and my brother's college. 
and uh, my younger sisters were uh, in middle school and my father was totally incapable of taking care of any child <laughs> in those days you know fathers never did anything except for order a housemaid or something to get a glass of water so <laughs> that was my father <laughs> so uh, the children would normally travel with my mother i enrolled in college my older brother was already in college and my younger brother stayed with my father in dar es salaam for uh, his higher education in those days that was the first year in 1972 i think that was the first year that the tanzanian government had started high school post secondary education what they called it so he was one of the first batches and he wanted to try it out he didn't want to go to india but finally decided to come because it wasn't working for him and uh, he wound up at iit in mumbai and doing great right now so that is part of the story it's interesting that you mention your father falling into typical gender roles you know not really taking care of the kids because you did quite the opposite so you've gotten a phd in chemistry i think in in india in the in the 1900s you're a divorced single mother of two you're a female priestess you've broken pretty much all every all gender all the rules norm. yes <laughs> all the rules <laughs> What were you like as a kid? Were you someone that followed the typical rules or were you kind of a rule breaker from the start? I would say that I was a rebellious more than anything, but then pushed back, I would more rely on my mother than on my father in terms of what I can do and I can't do. If my mother is supportive of certain things, then definitely they didn't care about what my father said. Mm. But if my mother was not supportive of it, I would hesitate a lot more but I have to tell you a story in the sense that we moved from Vidyanagar to a very small village in Guj in Saurashtra which is the westernmost part of India and uh, I could not stay in that village so I applied for a internship there they would teach you how to appear in an exam for IAS which is Indian Administrative Services which is like the diplomatic services you become the town mayor and things like that so i applied for that and then i told my father that i'm going and my father said no you are not going i said i am admission is all done i have been accepted everything is all said and done all i have to do is just tell you and leave so he finally he had no choice but let me go and i did the same thing to him i applied for my masters classes and he uh, didn't even know but luckily for him and unluckily for me the day i had interview because in those days they would for masters they would give you an admission then they will take uh, an interview and then they will finalize the admission so i had my interview my father showed up in that same town in varodra and uh, my father said why are you here i said <laughs> just made up all kinds of stories and just uh, you know kept him in the dark until i finally was enrolled and my father said <laughs> when i said i'm coming back and i am going to be enrolled in a master's classes he said who is going to pay the fees i said you are 
I have all the admission. This is what I have and I'm going to start. So he said to me, then you will have to pay your own fees. I said, fine, I'll pay my own fees. And uh, I got a job as a teaching assistant in, you know, in India, they have those private tutoring classes. Mm, yeah. So I uh, joined one of those and uh, tutored uh, students that were appearing in certain exams and all that. So the moment my father realized that I am able to do it, my father said, fine, here's your fee. <laughs> because he, did, he didn't want to be labeled as a person who did not support his child. These days, we'll tell our parents stories to go hang out with friends, but you literally did it to go to school. <laughs> right. <laughs> that just kind of blows my mind because a big part of why I started this podcast is I want to bring representation. So I, I think people, when they see someone else like them doing something, they believe that it's possible for them. Right. These yeah. days you talk a lot about female empowerment and there's the feminism movement and all that. But when you were going through this process, those things weren't really talked about. No, and you hide yourself that you have done this because you are disrespecting your parents. You tell your other kind of stories. Oh, my father is so great. Oh, my mother is so great. Oh, my mother did that. My father did that. So, but my father was a very stubborn man. And if he didn't want it, and he didn't want it, you know, there was no two ways about it. All men of that generation. Yeah. <laughs> Even my grandpa. <laughs> yeah. And so you go on and you earn your PhD in chemistry. And at that point, I guess you had gotten married in India as well, correct? No, 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 no. So PhD was something that when I got graduated and when I started other kind of activities in school and going to back to college and all that, my father said, oh, who will marry a, a girl with a master's degree? I'll have to find you a PhD person. So I said to him that go find me a, a boy right now and I'll marry him and stop going to school. I said, I'm waiting for a month to show me at least one boy that is suitable for me, and then I will marry him. So you wanted to get married at that point? Oh, yeah. I always wanted to be a mother. I mean, not that I, w I wanted to marry anybody, but uh, I that was the norm, right? People would finish their college and get married, have children, family, and, you know, raise the kids in the best possible way that they can. Nothing happened, right? So I went to master's. Then I told my father, so what's going on? He said, nothing. I can't find a boy who will marry a master's degree girl. I said, okay, fine, I'll do PhD then. So, and then I enrolled in my PhD and my father said, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and I said, if you find a boy, I'll today I will stop. But you haven't done your part of it, so let me do my part. So my father was after that, he was just totally, had given up on me. <laughs> it's funny because arranged marriage is like such a strange concept to us here. In my head, I'm thinking she got her PhD, but at the time it was still kind of the, the default for you. Oh, even, even I got married as an arranged marriage. I mean, not that I didn't see him or meet him, anything like that. When I think about immigration, usually people are going either for better opportunities for themselves or better opportunities for their kids a job they want or that they want their kids to get into a better school or something like that. So what took you to England? Why did I go to UK? That question, it has been answered a long time ago in my mind that I did not want to stay in India. Mm. 
even if I had to struggle in England, I would be out of that country for no other reason than the fact that I have not felt at home in India because of, you know, oh, girls can't do that, the girls can't do this, you know, and I never f felt fitting in. So I said, I have to go somewhere else and find my spot. By that time, you know, in those days, the people used to get UK visa from East Africa. Every year, a certain number of people will get the visa to go to UK, who have applied and who were from the colonies and all that. So by the time I got my PhD, my visa call came. My father said, oh, you, do you really want to go to England? There is nobody we have that, that will support you there, at least for the beginning part of it. So I said, no, I will go. I will find something, you know, UK government, when they invite you for a, with a visa, they provide you a lot of settlement help. They give you health insurance. They give you some pocket money to start your life and all that. So I said, we'll figure it out. But at that point, my father was really good about it. Uh, we had a neighbor uh, so whose brother was in England. So he said, I will go and talk to him. And if you really want to go, I will make sure that you are being picked up from the airport, go to somebody's house that is more in line with our values and all that. So I said, okay. So when I went to England, he did contact the family that I lived with for a year and stayed in contact for a long time. Yeah. So it was nice. When you got to England, was it what you expected? Because it sounds like you went there for more opportunities as a woman, right? Yeah. Did you feel that you received that when you got there? It was a, not the greatest of time because uh, at that time there was a, a Mrs. Thatcher was in power. A lot of austerities and cuts and unemployment, very high unemployment. Didn't get a job for almost seven months. Then finally, when I got the job, it was something that I really loved. It was right up my alley on research, diabetes research and all that. So that was a, really, I loved that part of it. And then I just moved out of their house and stayed as a paying guest. And then my brother had already moved here to the U.S. at that time. So my brother said, oh, why don't you come visit me over Christmas? So I came here to visit over Christmas. And then he said, oh, you're by yourself over there. Why don't you come over? And if nothing, uh, you know, we'll try and get you a job or uh, find someone to, you know, marry. Because I was, by that time, I was 30. I said, okay, fine, I'll come. Because I was lonely there also. So here I am, uh, 35 years later. Came in 84, 85. 84, actually, sorry, 84. 85, my older daughter is born. So 84, I came. April Fool's Day, actually, <laughs> and uh, just uh, got married uh, in August of 84, had my older daughter in 85, had my second daughter in uh, 88, and uh, then got divorced in 94. <laughs> so <laughs> that is the story. Yeah, and you've always been in the New England area. Yeah, because I think New Jersey, my brother lived in New Jersey, and my ex-husband worked here in uh, Boston area. 
And so we moved to Boston after that. I never left from here to go anywhere else. It's so interesting to me that like you remember the years and the dates of all these things. Me and my friends, you know, we're we're just in our twenties right now, but we can't remember the the year of anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I think by the time you have uh, certain events in your life, uh, everything would be so clear <laughs> and so important that you don't want to forget it. Yeah, I worry that we've just exported everything into our phone. You know, like that's where that our is also is. true. That <laughs> is also true. Very true. Because uh, you go back and look, the reference uh, points are: let's check Google, let's exactly. check my phone. When did I go to, you know, Boston? I think I had some pictures with my friends. Let me check the date. You know, yeah. those are the things that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So. When most people would essentially be retiring around the age of 62, you decided to almost basically pick up a, a second career. You went to Haridwar in Gujarat and you became a priestess. Can you tell me a bit about why, why that was? Uh, Haridwar is actually in Uttar Pradesh. Rishikesh and uh, Haridwar is in uh, Uttar Pradesh. But what happened was that the kids were getting married and you would tell them that these are the rituals that I would like to see you go through. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, that's too long, too much, this, that. And all of a sudden, it's like pulling your teeth out to explain why. And, and that too, you are not doing a satisfactory job to explain these to your children. And then um, I had been thinking about it for a while and never got around to uh, leaving Boston and staying in India for two months and all that stuff. But then my nephew, who is in England, said to me, Masi, I want you to officiate my wedding. And then I said, oh, my God, that is a responsibility that I want to take it very seriously. And so I dropped everything, took two months of time off and went to Haridwar and wanted to learn how to take care of certain rituals, how to explain what is the meaning behind it and all that. So I said, at least for him, I will go and get my uh, understanding of why we do things. And then when I came back, uh, it was a really great experience for me. And there are a lot of youngsters who were interested in understanding what what it all means to be part of a religious ceremony so then i said okay let's do this there is nothing wrong in me being a priestess when you look at the vedic philosophy it explains that everyone is equal men women you look at the gods and goddesses goddesses are supposed to be shakti and they have been able to overrule men in so many instances and they have been able to root out evil. So why shouldn't I do it? You know, I'm not doing anything wrong. At the same time, I have seen priests come to my house and going through the motions and going through the questions that if my kids asked, they would be like round and round and not perfectly clear. And even if they didn't know, they would be really hard pressed to accept it that they don't know. So it is tough for them to say, oh, I don't know why I, why we do this. 
or let me look it up and I will tell you. So it was tough for me to let kids think that, okay, fine, I don't know, and uh, just do it because I said so. That is tough. So it sounds like a large part of why you did this was because you wanted to be able to explain and to teach the culture properly or the rituals. Right. But, you know, the thing that stands out to me, so I understand what you were saying about Vedic mythology and the fact that you're a female priestess might be unusual to a lot of people. But the thing that really stands out to me is the fact that you've always been religious, but you're also a PhD in chemistry. And I think a lot of people struggle with reconciling, myself included, science and religion. I understand that, but I think my reconciliation comes from certain basic understanding of the fact that philosophy is explained in Hindu shlokas. The learning aspect is more important than uh, the ritualistic aspect because we call enlightenment, right? So that enlightenment comes from knowledge and knowledge comes from learning. So if you want to do anything, learning is the most basic step. Then you can, you know, sit in your mind and you explain to yourself how it affects your overall understanding of everything. So that becomes more important. If you have some knowledge, and I always tell my kids, knowledge is power. doesn't matter what you know. As long as you know it, it is powerful even in the minusculest point. If you know something basic, then you you can apply it. So you mentioned that you did diabetes research, right? And I think for many of us, that's a very tangible, like this is something that you've learned while learning chemistry. What is something like that? Like what are your knowledge takeaways from studying Hindu philosophy? Huh, that is a tough question and very in- insightful question because now I have to look into myself. <laughs> <laughs> the Hindu knowledge, I feel that uh, there is a line that I have read somewhere that says, in Hinduism, you have to have a certain number of lifetime to achieve moksha, nirvana. So that certain number of lifetime is number of leaves in a tree. So if you can count the number of leaves in a tree, that is how many number of lives you have to take to achieve moksha. So to do that, you have to incrementally achieve knowledge. You cannot just achieve all that knowledge in one lifetime. So every lifetime you have to progress. And if you progress even a a tiny bit, there is a possibility that in your next lifetime you will do something more. It's like an incremental achievement that keeps you going. So I believe in that. That is my Hindu philosophy that I apply to every step in my life. Maybe it's because I've grown up in the States. Maybe it's just my personality. I tend to study more secular, like Greek philosophy and that kind of stuff. Right. But what you're talking about, incrementally adding knowledge. I mean, there's a lesson about patience there. There's a lesson about humility there. So it's something that I think can be applied to everyone. Right. And I don't think it is uh, It is particularly uh, significant to Hinduism alone, because there are so many religions that believe, like Buddhism, you know, Confucius and all that. They believe that every life 
you gain some knowledge that is applicable to the next one right only i think certain western religions have that you know you end and then you go to hell or heaven or however you want to explain it but more eastern religions do not do that that applicable knowledge is the with the soul rather than with the body so that's how i feel so another thing that i find very interesting is you went back to India to study all of this and to gain the knowledge. But when you come back to America to apply it, I think you have to go through some unique processes or unique scenarios, right? So one example that I'm thinking about is interfaith marriage. How do you navigate that ritual and everything? Was that something that you were able to learn in India or did you have to figure it out when you got here? When I got here, my nephew, who I did the first wedding, they are interracial marriages because his wife is English and we being Hindu, right? The way we decided was that my niece-in-law wanted separate church wedding. That was her preference. So definitely because, you know, we respect one another. We said, okay, go ahead, plan the way you want that wedding. And then we decided that whatever my nephew wanted, that we'll do in the Hindu wedding. So that was easy part. So then I had another interfaith wedding where the girl was from a Christian faith and this boy was Hindu from our caste. So that time I asked them whether you are going to do two ceremonies or one ceremony. Both of them agreed they wanted to do one ceremony. They didn't want to go through two ceremonies. It's expensive to do two weddings. <laughs> no, if, if, I mean, even if you add along, you know, do it in the morning, do it in the afternoon, however it works. But they wanted only one ceremony. So the part that I worked with them was that, what do you want to include? As a girl, everybody, all the girls, and it, it doesn't matter where, where you are. They think about their wedding day since they are like 10 years old or nine years old. And so I said, what is important to you? as a person close your eyes and you imagine your wedding day what would happen that day so she said oh my grandmother would recite a hymn that's perfect and he said oh we'll have some scriptures being read i said perfect no problem and so and i asked the boy what would you want and he would say oh in uh, hindu wedding seven steps are the most important phase of the ceremony so i said fine that is easily done so i combined everything that was important to them arranged in such a way that it flew nicely as a flow of the event and came up with a program that is how i mostly deal with interfaith even if they are the same faith i want to know what they want to include in that because they, they want a shorter ceremony they don't want all the fuss that goes on into hindu ceremonies so i do take the time to cut things out what they don't want put things in what they want even if there is something different that they want i'll do the research and include it so yeah that is how i approach the whole wedding process I love that. So you're mixing tradition with what the person wants individually. Right. Yeah. A couple of days ago, there was an inquiry from a, a young woman in Ohio. She's getting married to a Catholic guy. And she said, I want, the word I liked the most was curate. 
<laughs> I have to find out what her background is to use that word. People don't use that word. She works in a museum or something. Right. <laughs> and as she told me that I want you to curate our wedding. And I said, oh, what a wonderful word it is. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of people say, I want you to officiate my wedding, which is a normal thing to say. But curate my wedding, I was really blown away with that word only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is interesting. You know, my friend recently got married. And when I was watching the ceremony, I was so intimidated because I know you took a formal study of Sanskrit. So it all makes sense to you. But I was worried that I wouldn't even be able to pronounce the things that he was saying. Because <laughs> he grew up in India. So he had some familiarity. Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I think there is a very personal element to it. So I, I like that approach. And I think uh, there is no right or wrong way of getting married. If you look at Islam, you know, you can get married over the phone, right? You say three times, nikah kabul hai, nikah kabul hai, nikah kabul hai, and you are married. And uh, in India, if you look at Hindu gods and goddesses getting married, like Sita giving a garland to Rama and she was married. Then there are uh, other weddings that throughout the scriptures, you can see that the weddings have been done in however it worked because the king goes to uh, the forest on a hunting party and sees a beautiful girl and gets married right there so there is no right or wrong way of getting married that is my first philosophy and first and foremost understanding that i impart to the couples who come to me they don't think that it has to be certain ways it has to be the way you want it that's the way it has to be Aside from what you're doing as a priestess, you've maintained your South Asian, your Gujarati culture in a few different ways. You teach cooking, Indian cooking at a vocational school. You teach Gujarati in Boston. You still make traditional like bead art that you've learned from your mother. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm curious about the purpose behind these things. Is it a nostalgia that you're trying to maintain on a personal level or is it because you want to preserve the culture and you see importance in that? I think it mostly for my children and grandchildren because I'm assuming that, that at least they will have some importance of what I did uh, as a person and what uh, they would like to do as a person to carry that tradition. It doesn't matter what they, how they modify because change is bound to happen, right? That is the way we have come all these years. The humanity has come through change, not by keeping the old things together. So I feel that if they know what I have done and if they can contribute even a little bit to further that you know, knowledge of culture, I think uh, that would be a good thing. Why go into the community with it? I see that as a method of sort of involving my children first and foremost, because if I don't do something out there, then uh, they would be like, oh, I don't want to go. I mean, this is a standard thing that I heard. I don't want to go to Shishu Bharati, which is like the Indian school. I said, why? Because I have to wake up early in the morning on Sunday. I said, but you'll see your friends there. You have so many friends from the community. But I'm so tired. Then they give me homework I have to do. And so I said, but we'll do it together, you know, not to worry too much. So that is how it started. I have to go to teach. That means they cannot stay by themselves at home. So they have to come. So that is a way of just pushing things to a point where 
they cannot avoid. <laughs> it was a word. trap. <laughs> yeah. But then I think what happened was that they made good friends. They went dancing together. They went on weekend parties together. They would meet up after Indian school. So it, everything good came out of it. Yeah, I think I've noticed that for a lot of people that have been on the podcast and for myself included, when you're younger, you don't fully appreciate these things. But when you're older, you're glad that you went through the process to retain the culture. I agree with that. The reason I say this is because now after eight years of going to school, 10 years of going to Indian school, both my daughters can read and write Gujarati fully, understand what it means. And the only thing they have to do is now break into a rapid fire uh, uh, conversation. But my older daughter is getting there now because she wants to teach her daughter. So I think they appreciate it. We talked about this in the beginning, but you've broken so many norms and so many things that may have been expected of you when you were younger. Did you have any sort of expectations for your daughters? And what did that look like? I don't want any expectations to be met. They have to set their own expectations from themselves, what they want. Because uh, when you set expectations for others, they are bound to fail you because they are your expectations. But if they set their expectations for themselves, then they will try and fulfill it. They will work harder to get that. So I don't want to set expectations for anyone. That goes for my children, close family, nothing. Because expectation is a road to failure. I believe in that. That's very interesting because it also seems similar to how you're approaching weddings. Then I wonder, what did you see as your role as a parent? Because we talk about one of the big transitions between Indian parenting and more American parenting is like Indian parents kind of act more as disciplinarians. American parents kind of treat their kids as friends. What did you see as your role? Being a, a single mother, I had no choice but to be a dual disciplinarian as well as a freedom giving parent because there was no other person who could give them that choice of what to do in terms of like, oh, my mother is angry. Maybe I will go to my father. My father is angry. Maybe I'll go to my mother, you know? So they, there was no choice. So at this point, I want to say that I muddled through whatever felt right at the moment when I was raising my kids, I did it. And I do believe that the instincts that I had carried me through. Not that I had given any specific thoughts that, oh, I should be this way or that way. But I took to my instincts, whatever was, I felt right, I did it. And I feel that uh, it has brought me to this point and I have no regrets. Yeah, you all seem very close. Can you tell us about the tattoos? Oh, <laughs> my grandmother, both of them were from a small village in Gujarat. So when they were young girls, the people would come to do tattoos. And they would inscribe their friends' names on it. They would inscribe their uh, gods and goddesses on their body. And they would do all sorts of stuff. 
but I never saw those kind of things on my grandmother. So my grandmother had three dots. So she had it from her wrist all the way up to her arm, all the way up. Just a pattern of three dots. Three dots. And she had on her wrist going up, on her back going up, and she had like four rows all the way around. And both my grandmothers had it. And then finally, when they, when I was maybe 25, 26 years old, I asked my mom, I wanted to get this done because my grandmother had just passed away at the time. So I told her, my mother said, oh, the fashion has already gone now. What is the point of getting tattoos now? No need to do it. And as I told you, I would look up to my mother more than my father. So my mother said, oh, no need to do it. I just put it off my mind. And then uh, I had a 17-year-old who snuck up and got a tattoo. <laughs> and I found out at one point when she was wearing a short sleeve shirt. And I said, when did you get it? Oh, well, I was in college. I said, oh, you didn't even bother to ask me? Because my uh, rule of thumb is that uh, you can do whatever you want. At least you need to tell me and ask whether you get it done or not. At least you have to hear my side of the reasoning that why you should or you shouldn't. So she said, no, I knew you would say no. So didn't want to ask. <laughs> I said, you are right about that, but you have to give me the opportunity to say no. So I was very upset at that time. Then, uh, uh, you know, if you forget all of these things. And then finally, I told the story about the tattoos from my grandmother. She was in North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina, and she called me. She said, Mom, I'm going to get uh, the three dots that your grandmother had. I said, no need to get it right now. So she goes, no, I'm getting it. So she got it and sent me the picture. And so I said, okay, now there is no going back, right? So when I went to visit, she had made an appointment for me to get the tattoo. <laughs> So here we are. We have a tattoo. I said, I don't want a full length, So, but both of us have. So my younger daughter wants it, but hasn't got around to it. My niece also has a matching tattoo. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's tradition. Yeah. One more question, and then I'm going to transition into where people can find you. But we talked about the role as a parent. You're the first grandparent I've had on the podcast. And one thing that's really interesting for me is my grandparents have always lived in India. So I would only see them once every eight years or something. We didn't have the same opportunity as maybe your grandchildren have where you're in the same country, same you know region, even of the States. So what do you see as your role as a grandparent? My granddaughter is uh, older granddaughter will be three in June. My younger granddaughter will be one in June. And I have one that's on the way. Will be born end of August, beginning of September sometime. The only thing I see as grandparents is give them the exposure to Indian culture. I sing them Gujarati children's songs, you know, nursery rhymes, and off and on we'll talk in Gujarati, play with them, give them questions. Having a scientific background helps me to explain certain things because I'm a very uh, nature kind of person. So we go on long walks, you know, and uh, 
uh, try and observe the surroundings. If you hear some noise, we'll stop and see who is making that noise. So those kind of things are the things that I want because I don't want to interfere with how they want to bring their child up. I want to sort of take the cues from them rather than give them the cues of how to bring the child up because they will be facing different things in their lifetime than what I have faced. So my experiences are no longer relevant. They are informative, but not relevant. I feel that that is what I want to give them. That's amazing. So Ranjan, where can people find you and connect with you if they want to follow along? I have a website, thenewenglandpriest.com. The email address and everything is in that. So if they want to reach me, that is the best way to do it. I really appreciate you bringing me onto your podcast. And thank you. Thank you. This has been very fun. I've enjoyed it. Hey, it's Suraj. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for reaching the end of the episode. Hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you did, please take a moment to share with a friend or leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow along in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. See you on the next episode. Stay well.